0: John chapter 7. I will confess, I did not have my morning caffeine. We'll see what happens. All right. Uh, Although we're going to be looking primarily at 25 through 31, I'm going to cheat because I want to bring in 24. Uh, as As I was thinking about this text throughout the course of the week, that's what kept coming back to me. That uh, it, it, this has to be seen in light of verse 24. The Word of God. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I have come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. And he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come yet. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray. Father, apart from grace, we are blind. Our understanding is darkened, our thinking is futile. But you have not left us to our own devices, to our own thinking. You have sent your Son to exegete you, to reveal you, to interpret you, so that we may come to know you, trust you, and love you. And so we ask that you would work by the Spirit to help us to see the Son and therefore you more, more clearly in the scriptures this morning. Amen. Surely if you want to get an argument started, there are a few things you can talk about rather quickly. One of them is, who is the best or worst? Doesn't matter. It could be presidents. It could be singers, guitarists. It could be athletes, any number of things. Just recently, we were, some of us were entertained uh, by the fact that Jer- Derek Jeter was retiring, and there was all the talk of who is the greatest Yankee. It wasn't Derek Jeter. I'll tell you that. This morning, as I lay in my bed too early because the boys had been making too much noise, uh, too early in the morning for me, I started thinking about this, and my mind, for some reason, went to a movie that Amy and I enjoy but haven't watched in a while, Return to Me. Maybe some of you remember that. Mini driver, David Duchovny. I first watched it because of David, because he was in X Files, you know. And there's this one scene where the guys who work in the restaurant are sitting down and they're playing a game of cards and they're having an argument about who is the greatest male singer. And one of them challenges the other You're Polish. What have you got? The guy thinks for a moment Bobby Vinton. We got Bobby Vinton. Remember, these are all old guys, okay? He's like, what about you, Irish guy? What do you got? The Irish Rovers? He goes, ah, oh, I got three words for you. Mr. Bing Crosby. To which someone mentions, yeah, he beat his kids. Now we've gone from what race you are to what, the, you know, the lifestyle of the various singers. And then someone mentions Sinatra. He didn't beat anybody. No, sorry. Sinatra beat up everybody. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't Sinatra. It was his guys who beat up everybody. To which someone counters Dean Martin. He didn't beat up anybody. What about Jerry? To which they all basically go, he deserved it. (laughs) Sorry, Deb. It's then that one of the men goes and talks about all of the great Italian singers, for which there are too many to mention, of which Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra are only two. But see, worked up about which singer, which male singer, was the greatest, bringing in all sorts of strange criteria to try and determine this. They sound almost like these people in Jerusalem in John chapter 7 they're bringing up what from our perspective and what Jesus perspective would be strange criteria to sort out who is he is he the christ isn't he the christ they they are in a sense an example of how theology is not to be done okay some superficial reasons but super, superficial assessments don't lead us to the truth about Jesus that's the bottom line i think of this passage of scripture all the wrong ways to figure out who Jesus is. The first wrong way is that Jesus' identity is not determined by others or the opinion of others. It's not a poll. There's not a, you know, some sort of a survey that's taken place. But let's think about this passage for a moment. Earlier on in John 7, we heard from his brothers who spoke to Jesus with scorn, a little bit of mockery. We've heard from the pilgrims already who have come into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and some of them said, you've got a demon. Now we hear from some more parties that are in Jerusalem. And the first one we see is that the people of Jerusalem, they're confused because they know that Jesus is the one that the leaders were actually trying to put to death. They knew this, and yet here it is at the feast, everyone's around, And Jesus is teaching openly in the temple, not in some hidden back room somewhere, openly for all to see. And no one has said a word. No one has laid a finger on him. They speculated as to why this change. Here he is. Why don't they come arrest him? Why don't they come bring him away? Why don't they do what they have intended to do? And they wonder, do they really know That this is the Christ? Meaning, have they changed their mindset, their opinion? Have they gone from thinking that he was a blasphemer and a breaker of the Sabbath? Have they now decided that Jesus is actually the Christ? Now let's keep in mind. They're not saying that they believe he is the Christ, but they're saying, have they now begun to believe he is the Christ? Then they state their own beliefs which were rather interesting. They say, "But we know where this man comes from." Okay, that's that's a key thing for what's going on. That's part of their argument against the view that he is the Messiah because from their perspective, they knew that Jesus was from Galilee. Now, we come into a bit of a problem. There were some people who believed rightfully on the basis of Scripture that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That's what we see uh, when we read about the Magi coming to Herod's court, and they're asking, where is the child who is king born? And he asks the scribes, and they say, Micah, uh-huh, Bethlehem. And so they send the Magi off to Bethlehem. And so there were some that believed on testimony of Scripture that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, and of course... These people didn't realize Jesus actually came from Bethlehem. But more importantly, there were some who believed that the Messiah would arise unexpectedly and his origins would not be known. And that could be taken in one of two ways. Some thought that he would basically almost like physically appear out of nowhere, okay, as the Messiah. And some thought he would just be a figure who suddenly arises out of nowhere into prominence. Uh, There were some different views on that. And so what they're saying is, is that they're saying is we know where he's coming, where he comes from. They thought they weren't supposed to know where the Messiah came from. Therefore, by their logic, he can't be the Messiah, whether religious leaders think he is or not. They have a false standard, sort of like judging the merits of a singer based upon record sales. Record sales don't tell the whole story. Sorry, Justin Bieber, not that good of a singer. Okay? Although, maybe I shouldn't say that because I haven't heard him, so I don't know. Maybe he is really good. Either way, it's a false standard. No, you say he's bad? Okay, we'll go with Stephanie on her, on her expert opinion Justin Bieber, no good. Okay? But we, we're, we're prone to fall for sort of false standards at times, and these people are falling for a false standard their perception of from whence Jesus comes. And Jesus then speaks to them here publicly, and everyone agrees, that I've read anyway, that this, he's speaking ironically, okay? You know me, and you know where I come from. He's not approving of them in this statement, okay? Because they don't really know him, And they really don't know from whence he comes. They think they know, but they don't. And that's the key. Because if they did know, they would know that he was the Messiah. This is, in a sense, an ultimate rush to judgment. They've fallen into the very thing that Jesus warned the people to not do. They've entered in a superficial, unrighteous judgment as to who Jesus is. Jesus says that he did not arise of his own will, but of he who sent me. He's talking about the Father. Jesus has come to them precisely because it was the Father's will, the Father whom they don't know. Now that, should scare them if they got it which i suspect they didn't what jesus is saying is you don't know god you talk a lot about god but you don't know him because if you did know him you would know i come from him you would recognize jesus they would recognize jesus as who he was the eternal Son of the eternal Father. And so the real issue is they don't have true knowledge of God. They would recognize if they did that Jesus is a chip off the old block, that he is the one who is in the likeness of the Father. Again, back to what we've seen in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he exegeted or explained or interpreted the Father to us. As Jesus will say later on in his Gospels, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, is what he told Thomas. And so if they really knew God, then they would know Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for, though not necessarily one who will do what they've expected him to do. Jesus' identity is not determined by other people, it's determined by the Father. It all leads back to the fact that he comes from the Father and he has been sent by the Father. We cannot escape this when we think about who he is. And so people have lots of opinions about Jesus, but the one opinion that matters is the Father. For he says, this is my beloved Son, With whom I am well pleased. Secondly, I want us to we're going to shift slightly, but I want us to see that Jesus' times and yours are in the Father's hands. Now remember, we're shifting now to the leaders. Contrary to the belief of the pilgrims, they were seeking to arrest him, meaning Jesus. Contrary to the opinion of the people of Jerusalem who see Jesus speaking untouched, they were actually trying, the leaders were actually trying to arrest Jesus. Okay? They just didn't know that that was going on. Okay? Their plans were foiled. Okay? We're probably familiar with this. There are more terror threats that go on that we never hear about because God foils them one way or another. Okay, There's more going on than we understand or we know about. And that's essentially the point here. There was more going on in Jerusalem by, on the part of the leaders than the people knew was going on. But their plans were foiled. No one laid a hand on him. Jesus is untouched. And the reason why? His hour had not yet come. The time of his death, that's, the, that's what that idea of the, his hour has not come. We saw that in, in uh, John chapter 2. The time of his death had not arrived. Wasn't here yet. So of course they can't touch him. The father continues to protect him until that moment. We see in Acts 2 verse 23, Peter in his sermon says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so in addition to the fact that Jesus is killed at the hands of lawless men, there was a definite plan according to the foreknowledge of God. God has a plan. And God's plan did not include Jesus being arrested on that day at the Feast of Tabernacles or any day on that Feast of Tabernacles. God's plan was for Jesus to be arrested during the Passover. That's going to come up later on in this book. It wasn't so much when the leaders get around to it, but when the Father finally permitted it. They could not strike until it was time, even though they wanted to. We have to keep this in mind as we think about this. The father preserved his son from the plots of the leaders in order to fulfill his purpose. There's more he needs to tell people about the father. There's more he needs to teach. There are more miracles he needs to perform. There's more for him to do the fullness of time. That phrase that we read about in Galatians chapter 3, that he was born of a woman in the fullness of time, or at the right moment, he's also not going to die until the right moment. This idea of providence, we need to remember this. That God's uh, providence encompasses the birth and death of Jesus in the fullness of time, but it also encompasses your life in its events. For instance, Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You make plans, and sometimes God laughs. But he accomplishes purposes. He establishes steps. Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has spoken, as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? How can There's no one who can stop him from accomplishing that which he sets out to do according to his will and purpose. Ephesians 1, verse 11, we see, In him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that's the phrase I want to, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's not just most of your life is laid out according to the counsel of his will, but all of your life because that's part of all things. It goes as big as who the president is. All of these sorts of things. Who's in power in Russia right now? All of that. God is working all of these things according to his plan, according to the counsel of his will. He's got it all in control. May not look like it to us, but he does. And so, God's providence encompasses your birth and your death and everything in between. All of your times are in his hands. I remember a conversation I had with uh, the mother of, of, of girlfriend number two after my conversion. Okay, I was still friends with the family. And I had stopped over and I knew I was alive for, for a reason. Precisely because I could think of many times I could have died. One of the few uh, vacations that my family went on uh, when I was really young, we went to Canada. Montreal, Canada. And I almost died. My mom doesn't swim. And she did the thing that the the lifeguards at the Y always blow their whistle at. She had me on her shoulders. And she was walking in the pool. And when it dipped, (laughs) she slipped. And in we both went. And I can't remember. I don't think I had lessons at, at the Y yet. But... Of course, the way my mind twisted everything, they saved her first, but that's not, really not what happened. Okay. They did get the child first, then the woman. Okay. I could have died. I think of other times when I was like, a, you know, many rambunctious teenagers, prone to binging on the weekends, barely able to walk to a car, and not getting and somehow finding out I got home. God preserved me. It was not time yet. All of us should have that sense. I am here now because God wants me here now. God wants me alive now to do certain things now and in the future. You're not alive by accident. Okay. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism talks about the providence of God because I often need to hear this. I need to be reminded of this, and that's why you have catechisms, to remind you of these things. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? The first thing, that we can be patient in adversity. Because we're not. When bad things happen to us, we immediately want, you know, Get out of jail free card. We want God to remove the uncomfortable circumstances that we experience. Patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, with a view to the future that we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. And so the catechism wants us to remember that God has us completely in his hands and that he will display, if we are his, fatherly protection and provision for his people, even in the midst of difficulty and adversity and affliction. And we live in a scary day. I'm not sure how scary it really is, but it just sometimes can seem scary because the media likes to scare us. It sells, okay? It, it sells on the Internet. It sells in the papers. It sells on the, on the news. Scaring people sells. And so, you know, scary world out there. i You go on Facebook, and some people are paranoid about Ebola, okay? I'm praying about it. I'm not paranoid about it. I, you know, if you go to my house, we're not stockpiling for the inevitable, you know, pandemic or something, okay? Right? Okay. But there's a lot of fear I was at the gym and you know ESPN was really boring that day there's MSNBC and they've got live coverage of the nurse arriving in Atlanta you know and they've got they've got the 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 ambulance and the police cars in front of us three or four cars in front of and three or four behind it you think they're protecting the Pope or the president or something it was crazy live coverage fear stirring up fear in our hearts. We hear about ISIS and the possibility of the threat, and we live on the border. Hey, hello. There's lots of reasons we can be afraid. Okay? And we can choose to live in fear, or we can choose to trust in the Father who knows best. Now, I know it's not easy to trust the Father you can't see. Okay? Okay? I understand that I struggle with that too this week uh, right now I'm in my own reading I'm in Exodus Exodus 6 I read this this week Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel but they did not listen to Moses because okay here's the reason their broken spirit and harsh slavery. It had nothing to do with whether or not what Moses said was true, whether it sounded good, or anything like that. There are times in our lives when we don't hear the Father speaking to us, Fear not, for I am with you. There are times we don't hear it because, like the Israelites, we might have a broken spirit or something akin to harsh slavery. In other words, what we need to do, brothers and sisters, first off, is we need to own our fears. We need to say that we have them. We need to share them with the Father. I'm having a hard time trusting you right now, Father, because of this. I am afraid of this. Tell them about it. That's exactly what Paul counseled the Philippians. Be anxious for nothing. That, that's an aspect of fear. You're fearful for something. Be anxious for, for nothing, but in everything, make your requests known with thanksgiving. In other words, just pray about it. Bring it to him. Okay? But that means in part you've got to be honest with God about the fear that resides in your heart. Okay? That's an aspect of intimacy. Right. Okay? Don't be afraid that, you know, this is, we don't, we're not, we're not a word of faith church where if we speak something bad, it comes into existence. (laughs) That's craziness. You tell the Father, this is what I'm afraid of. Help me. I need your help. Okay? So own your fears in your prayer. Thanksgiving is very important that we not lose sight of the crisis in front of us, but we see it within the larger context of God's provision for us. So, in addition to owning your fears, own your past. Own up to how you struggle to listen to the scriptures. Father, I'm struggling, and here's why. Your own harsh slavery, so to speak. Okay? The last couple months have been very difficult for me. Okay. We're going through this building project. Okay? And what it stirs up are all these insecurities and fears from the past. Okay? It's not just about now for me. Okay? But I have, to, I have to continually fight against my past, my history. You know, It's like in the middle of the night, there's another church going to close under your care, Steve. I feel that. And I have to fight that. Okay? It's not easy to trust. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying to you that it's just all it takes is a little it it takes it's a spiritual battle to believe in the truth of the gospel when everything that's within you, because of your broken spirit and your harsh slavery is crying out, I can't trust God. You can't listen to yourself. You have to listen to the scriptures. You have to remember that you lie to yourself. You have to remember that Satan lies to you, but God will not lie to you. He will speak that you will know the truth. It's very important for us, I think, to remember this. The Father kept Jesus until the hour had arrived, and the Father will keep you until your hour arrives. Fear not. It may be hard, but he's in control. Third thing I want us to ponder this morning, kind of getting back to that idea of superficial judgments, Jesus isn't Messiah by default, but rather by the Father's design. We have this strange thing that happens in the midst of all of this perceived rejection, real rejection, of Jesus as the Messiah. We have perceived faith. In the midst of all this, it says many of the people believed in him. So they had some measure of faith. I'm not sure I would call it saving faith, however. So let's not get too excited about the, about this. Although I understand we long to see the prosperity of the gospel. We want, we want to see it move forth. We want to see people saved. And, we, and sometimes we jump the gun because someone says when they're accepting an award, I want to thank God. Well, uh, well, let God. Okay. There have been famous or sometimes influential people who profess faith and then don't. Singers, Katy Perry. She grew up in the church. She professed faith. I don't know her condition at this point, but she looked pretty messed up to me. Looks like she needs a lot of help. Because she's fallen in love with success and she thinks that money's going to buy her all the happiness that she needs. Pray for Katy Perry. She's not the only one. There's a former professor at West, from Westminster Seminary who is going down a bad road. He's, he's probably a couple years away from denying the resurrection based on the trajectory he's moving. It's scary. That there are people who profess faith, and sometimes they look very solid in their faith, very knowledgeable in their faith. But something shipwrecks them. These people, back to them, they essentially believed in Jesus by default. Listen to their rationale. When the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? So, you know, they're looking at Jesus and they're kind, yeah, he's done a couple of miracles. We hear about that. When we remember, you know, six months ago when he healed the paralytic and is the Messiah, can he do better than that? Ah, this guy must be it. They're reasoning themselves into something called faith that really isn't a faith. They're focused on the miracles instead of what the miracles point to. The miracles point us to who Jesus is. You know, the, the feeding of the fourth, of the four thousand points to Jesus as the bread of life, the one in whom we have our existence, our spiritual life. They point to who he, what he is able to do as our Redeemer. They've lost that a bit. Miracles also point us to the hope that we have of the renewed heaven and earth. They're sort of an appetizer of what shall be for when the earth is renewed, there'll be no more paralytics. There'll be no more hunger for God's people. So these are sort of appetizers or foretastes of of the renewed heavens and earth now. That's what miracles are. These tastes of what is to come. But these people with their sort of Jesus by default must be the Messiah, are sort of viewing this thing as a competition, not a matter of truth. Okay? Uh, They're interested in Jesus, but they're not committed to Jesus. They're interested in maybe checking out some more, but they haven't committed to him as he calls them to. Whenever whenever they experience struggles or there's something that offers a greater satisfaction, then they will shift allegiances. It's sort of like the guy in the room who always cheers for the winner. Okay? You know, win or lose, I'm cheering for the Red Sox. Okay? But there's some people that just shift to whomever's winning because they always like to be on the winning side. They're They're not really cheering for anybody. That's what these people are like. This guy looks good for now. He looks pretty good. Let's kind of see what happens. They're not committed. They're not willing to die. They're not willing to follow. They're not willing to obey. They're just willing to watch. Big difference. We have to remember, back to the Father's design. Jesus has come from the Father not of his own volition, but was sent from the Father. That's why it's so hard for us to understand this, I think, or or to really believe this at times. This is why I think this, this gospel just keeps going back there, going back there, going back there. Sent from the Father. If we remove those two things, we don't understand who Jesus is. If we remove those two things, Jesus is just an ordinary guy. And therefore he would not be worthy of your worship, of your obedience. He's just their days Justin Bieber for rabbis. That's all he is. Big deal. Doesn't matter. But if Jesus is who he says he is, everything changes. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our obedience. And not just worthy, uh, we're compelled. If he is who he says he is, we should feel compelled to worship and obey him. not just observe him and see what happens, but to entrust ourselves to him completely. So trying to sort out religious truth can often sound like people arguing over which is the best singer or anything else, the best place to eat. I don't know. People use all sorts of of criteria, but most of these things are not very helpful. Many of us were no better than Jesus' brothers, the pilgrims, the Jerusalem crowd, and the leaders. We forget that our criteria criteria is not the criteria that matters. Again, it all comes back to the testimony of the eternal Father, that he sent the eternal Son to save the people the Father gave to him. And it is only the Father, by work through the Spirit, that can help someone see this truth seen this truth or are you still seeking that truth if you've seen it people should be able to observe worship and obedience because you're united to Jesus and that's what he produces let's pray father forgive my muddle muddle headedness this morning Help us just focus on the reality that Christ was sent by you. He is to be worshipped, to be obeyed. And that you have us in your hand if we believe in you. If we know you, all our times are in your hands, so that we need not fear. Help us to be honest with you about what's going on in us. The doubts we have, the fears we have, the the damage that has been done to us by others or by circumstance. Help us to bring that all to you so that you can fix what needs to be fixed. That you can heal what needs to be healed. Strengthen that which is broken and weak. You can minister to us in the power of the Spirit by your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.